Welcome. This is Brad Westwood, and you've been listening to the podcast Speak Your Peace. Our guest today is Nyland McBain, and we're speaking about her book, Pioneering the Vote, the untold story of the suffragists in Utah and the West. Nyland, thank you for being with us on the second half. Thank you for having me. Um, you, in your book, you explain this inner personality, the creative mind of Emmeline B. Wells, her convictions. Will you talk about this fascinating person and her part in this whole story? Yeah, I absolutely love Emmeline. Uh, she was really the, the person who got me started on this journey initially by reading one of her biographies several years ago. And I feel a lot of connection with her. I think as a Native Easterner, as a writer, um, I just, I, I have so much love and sympathy for her. Didn't you her grow up was, in was, the same area, Nyland, as she came Well, from? I'm from New York. I she, she was from Massachusetts originally, and I'm oh, from New York okay. City. But, um, but you know, she she talked so often about New England. I went to school in New England. So, you know, I, I think I, I have many of that, those same logging mm-hmm. <laughs> living in, in Utah, um, as much as we, you know, love Utah and, and are working towards its uh, betterment and greatness. I, I think she, I like Emmeline, you know, always have roots back in the East. So a lot of, uh, I, I do feel close to her. Uh, I, I also think that her early hardships really were uh, important in shaping her vision of of herself and her need to be self-reliant. And I, I, I try to bring that out as one of the themes of her personality is that she really was forced to be self-reliant mm-hmm. financially, emotionally, um, you know, in, in her socially, uh, she, she suffered some trauma in her teenage years through her first marriage, which you'll have to read the book to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to hear about because it's one of my favorite stories. So I don't want to, I don't want to spill the beans here, but, you know, she she uh, becomes the second wife of Newell K. Whitney in Nauvoo, Illinois. And then her third marriage is to Daniel Wells here in Salt Lake, who was the mayor of Salt Lake City, but really didn't wasn't able to support her financially or emotionally or romantically mm-hmm. uh, because she was the sixth wife. And, and um, so she lived on her own for most of her life and had to support herself by editing the Women's Exponent. And I think that that self-reliance, again, is sort of a byproduct of polygamy was that she couldn't rely on, uh, you know, this, this stable domestic life or a providing husband for her. And so it, that really drove a lot of her philosophies around women needing to have outlets for expression, for um, creating policy, for um, making their own money and for educating themselves. And and she is uh, rightly so a prominent person in the story as far as the influence. I, I get the impression she's constantly creating relationships. She's building all these connections with other journalists, women's papers, uh, uh, the, the suffrage movement uh, nationally. Uh, and she takes this kind of very soft approach. Could, could you talk about maybe some of the counter uh, interactions she had with members here in Utah that were wanting to do something different and what, what was her unique way of managing this yeah. big effort? Yeah. So Emmeline 
uh, as I mentioned, edited the Woman's Exponent for 36 years. And so she had a platform through which she could write thousands of editorials. And the, the suffrage newspapers at that time, uh, of which there were dozens across the country, were really the women's way of sharing their opinions and getting to know the other suffragists in you know the far-flung geographic areas of the country, and so these papers really circulated across the country, and there were they, it was the women's idea of sh- way of sharing their ideas and getting to know each other. They also had um, I will just mention sort of as an aside, you know, really the only other political tool available to them at, at the time was the petition, um, and so between newspapers and the petitions, those are really the tools that women had at that time. Uh, to to create this this movement and to learn and to sort of train themselves, uh, educate themselves on the issues, and then have their voices heard. So Emmeline made really good use of of that newspaper network, and as you say, built really was a bridge builder in building connections across the country and representing the Utah women's point of view. She she definitely was very much in line with the strategy of the day. Uh, the women's strategy of the day nationally, which was to be very compliant and which to be didn't very always um, work, did it? I mean, this compliant no. model is uh, not. Uh, I mean, it's part of the nineteenth, and it's part of our life today. But somehow, I think uh, this story you share kind of shows the turbulence of how, how do you how do you push something through and make a change? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, Emmeline just very cleverly recognized that her fate was in men's hands, right? Mm -hmm. And so when she was organizing um, the Utah women uh, around the Constitutional Convention and and the discussions of including women's suffrage in the Utah State Constitution, you know, I include in the book one letter in particular that she writes to some of the delegates, and it's extraordinarily flowery, you know, supplicant language Mm -hmm. appealing to that sort of um, that sort of patriarchal protection instinct, uh, and and a very she was a very romantic writer. She she actually first and foremost wanted to be a poet. Unfortunately, her poetry is not that great, um, and her prose writing is is much stronger. Um, but she did always fancy herself as a poet, and so she is very very flowerly, sort of overwrought language uh, in the way that she. She writes to men in particular. And I imagine that she was very much of a sort of safe person for men to gather around. I I imagine that um, she wasn't threatening to men, that she she really liked men. Um, That's kind of the impression that I get. Mm -hmm. And and this was pretty typical strategy. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, this, this Phil Hunt strategy was kind of the general approach in the state-by-state campaign at the end of the 19th century, the still hunt, meaning you act very feminine, you act reserved, right? But you're all, oh, you're kind of sly like a fox, right? You're on the hunt, like you know what you want, but you're willing to play the game to get it and to play by the rules. And um, of course, you know, I think one of the other reasons I like Emmeline is because she, you know, and I'm not, elderly yet but I imagine that as I get more elderly uh as she she gets more radical and mm-hmm. I can see you know through women in my life who have been working on some of these fronts for their whole lives that after a couple decades of doing it they get kind of radical too and so I kind of mm-hmm. love Emmeline at the end of her life definitely gets more radical and she aligns herself with the National Women's Party 
which is Alice Paul's party. And and she does this, I love, while she's General Relief Society president of the yes. LDS Church, right? So um, she's running the church, and she's also hosting all of these suffragists from the National Women's Party. And the National Women's Party is a new uh, political party that Alice Paul creates when she gets back from being sort of exposed to the militant suffragette uh, efforts in England, exactly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she brings that sort of commercial media savvy militarism to the movement in the 20th century. And Emmeline sees that the last 20 years of her life, mm-hmm. she, you know, she dies in 1921. So she, she sees that in her you know, sort of eighties and nineties. Um, and, and she aligns with it. She's, she's like, she gets feisty and she's like, yep, you know, we got to do this. We got to, we got to get this amendment. This is just not, this is not working anymore. So I, I see that change in her over the course of the decades that um, I look at in the book. And I just, yeah, I think it's a very, I think it's a very typical trajectory for women who work in this space. Well, I, I appreciate the way you develop these personalities, these, these individuals in, in your book. Um, I have a fascination as someone who loves architectural history, material culture, I, I love the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Uh, Utah played a big part in that, and it plays a part in the story. Um, I, I, tell us how that works out. How does that play into contributing to this story? Yeah, there is, there's been so much wonderful scholarship that's been done on the impact of the World's Fair on the, you know, the church's position generally in the nation but also on um, the LDS women's um, sort of role mm-hmm. in the national in the national conversation from this fair as well. And one of the elements that I was looking at um, for, for, uh, in, in my look in my research on the fair was specifically the way that it served as a sort of unifying touch point for the women of Utah, who some of whom had been in plural marriages, some of whom were monogamous, some of whom were Mormon, some were non-Mormon. And it was really the first time that they had a clean slate to come together and work towards something uh, in a unified manner. Mm-hmm. And as uh, some of your listeners will realize, 1893 was just two years after the LDS Church uh, declared its manifesto ending polygamy on paper. And so the issue of polygamy was politically at least put to bed, you know, for, for some, for some of these women. And they, mm-hmm. they were able, in fact, Jenny Foyseth specifically, who we talked about earlier, uh, and, and many other women like her Comes were back. then willing exactly to cut, to come back to, to, and, 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 and work with the LDS Utahns, uh, to create a wonderful exhibit at the Chicago World's Fair. And, you know, the other reason I love the Chicago World's Fair was because, um, speaking of material culture, you know, the the Utah women become famous Mm -hmm. for their silk exhibit. And um, I love how silk actually plays into this whole story of suffrage because uh, the the women of Utah had been raising silkworms and, and spinning their own silk. And uh, and this, the World's Fair gave them an opportunity to show the, the, their handiwork and their, their, their that craft. And in fact, they became so famous for it that on uh, Susan B. Anthony's 80th birthday, the women of Utah, as a, as a token of gratitude towards her, 
gave her a bolt of this famous black Utah silk. Mm-hmm. And uh, Susan had it made into a dress. And she said that it was her most favorite piece of clothing because it was made by free women. And today, mm-hmm. that dress made of Utah silk sits in her bedroom in the Susan B. Anthony Home and Museum in Rochester, New York. Wow. Wonderful. Uh, another thing I enjoyed about your book was you begin each chapter with a segment, uh, an editorial, an essay, a poem uh, p- uh, from Women's Exponent, uh, the Rocky Mountain News, uh, uh, even verses from the songbook, uh, Utah Women's Suffrage Songbook. Would you read one of those pieces and speak about why you're keen about it and explain your appreciation for it? I, I also urge readers, you'll enjoy the book for these they're nice little uh, pieces uh, spread out across the book. Yeah, I, I think... Um... I'm so glad you asked about this because, you know, you never really know if people stop and, and read those little things at the beginning of the chapter. But the mm-hmm. reason I did it was because, you know, even though the story is told in fiction and nonfiction, even the fiction parts draw very heavily on primary source documents, and which I hope is very clear from the notes in the back. But I did want to put even more of the, the, of the flavor and, and just the voice and tone uh, of these people front and center. So I did, I did pull out some of my favorite statements uh, at the beginning of the chapters, but I think, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read um, the beginning of chapter six, which is actually an excerpt from one of, one of Emmeline's editorials in the woman's exponent. And I think, um, I think I like, I like uh, statements like this because I think it shows how modern their language actually mm-hmm. was and how progressive some of their, thoughts and statements were. Uh, I think, you know, even though I was talking about Emmeline being very supplicant towards men and being very um, sort of conciliatory towards their power, uh, she, she on the, on the other hand, when she was writing to, to women and not necessarily playing a political game was very feisty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love, I love this, this, this paragraph specifically. And I think it's very typical of the kind of language that these women used. Uh, at that t- at this, that time, she said, "Is there not, is there? Uh, sorry, I will. I'll, I'll preface this. This is from 1874, from the from the Women's Exponent, October 1st, 1874. So this is very early on mm-hmm. in Emmeline's career. Um, four years after Utah women even just start voting, she says, "Is there then nothing worth living for but to be petted, humored, and caressed by a man? That is all very well as far as it goes." But that man is the only thing in existence worth living for, I fail to see. All honor and reverence to good men. But they and their attentions are not the only sources of happiness on earth and need not fill up every thought of woman. And when men see that women can exist without their being constantly at hand, that they can learn to be self-reliant or depend upon each other for more or less happiness, it will perhaps take a little of the conceit out of them. (laughs) <laughs> so that has so many good Emmeline themes in it. You know, I, she's really trying to be a, be a great pragmatist, a great realist. She brings up the theme of self-reliance, which I think is um, so important. Mm-hmm. And she really takes on this idea of sort of patriarchy head on. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they need to be brought down to peg, you know, <laughs> they're not all that. We're so, equal um, here, or at least a, yeah, it's that aspiring to that concept, which... I think it's feisty. It's interesting. You, it, that was the very uh, 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 
statement I wanted you to read. <laughs> it was oh. when I asked the question. I didn't yeah. know you were going to follow that, but it it's just a lovely statement. Please go on about it. Do you have anything else you want to share about that idea? Well, I also think that, you know, one of the things that Emmeline always did was kind of this, but along with the self-reliant theme, it wasn't just economically self-reliant, but she's really talking about emotional self-reliance there, right? So, so she's saying, um, you know, you don't have to get all of your worth from being petted and humored by a man. And this is, you know, when you know something in Emmeline's life, this is really telling, right? Because um, as I mentioned, she's married three times. The second and third time are as a plural wife. And in her public writings are, you know, sort of show so much confidence like that. But then when you get into her private writings, her marriage with Daniel Wells specifically, which lasted over 40 years, was extremely lonely. And um, she, she really wanted to be loved um, and had a very romantic sentiment about her. As I mentioned, she, she was a poet. And she felt completely unfulfilled and frustrated by her marriages uh, until, and ironically, until the very end of her marriage with Wells. Um, there's, I, I, I can't remember, I don't really get into this very much in the book because it's a little bit outside the time frame. But at the end of her marriage to Daniel Wells, he becomes the president of the Manti Temple. And he has to go to Manti every week to oversee temple affairs in Manti and and she is picked to go with him often on that journey and it's actually in the last two years of Daniel's life so the last two years of their marriage they actually fall in love Mm. and this is explored much more in Carol Cornwell Madsen's biography of Emmeline her intimate history of Emmeline which of course everybody should read who's interested in this story agreed but it's an incredibly tender time in Emmeline's life where all of this sort of anger and feistiness and loneliness uh, really gets fulfilled for a very brief time. And then, of course, he dies and she's left a widow for the next several decades of her life. (laughs) When you live to 92, you go through these Mm -hmm. long eras of your life. Um, But she does have that moment uh, where even just for a couple years of her life, she, she feels loved and she feels like she has an emotional connection to her husband. But it is very rare and far between. And mm. there are so many other episodes in Emmeline's life. Um, she has a, a horrible tragedy with two of her daughters um, that I won't go into, but yeah. a well, lot of, a lot of personal trauma. You do mention a little bit about it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, those stories, which, which I think offers so much, uh, brings uh, Emmeline B. Wells and her life much into focus. So, but yeah, we don't, we don't need to mention it here, but we, I urge readers get a hold of the book to read about this remarkable person. I'm sorry, you go ahead, please. Anything else you want to share about this? No, I, th- I think that, I think that's it. Yeah. You know, Nyland, I, I love the instructive insights into the anti-suffrage movement. You know, we talk about Utah as if uh, men and women were supportive of women, but in the 1890s, there's a whole development of anti-suffrage thinking and and it's uh, led in many ways by uh, B. H. Roberts, the great intellectual giant uh, historian. Um, there's another complex story there. Could you share just a little bit about that? Yeah, and you know it's so funny because I think every good story needs a villain, and people <laughs> who are reading the book definitely are picking up on B. H. Roberts as the villain. He's the guy we love to hate in this book, um, and people are telling me. You know, 
oh, when I read about B.H. Roberts, I just wanted to throw the book across the room because I think he is a, a hero to so many people. And so I don't want to throw Roberts under the bus because he, he was obviously, as you say, an intellectual giant and did many good things. But I do think that when it comes to his record on women's suffrage, mm-hmm. um, there's, there's really a, a sort of whole side of his political career that really isn't explored. He's mostly known, of course, as a historian. But, um, but at the Constitutional Convention, he, he leads a faction that does not want to include women's suffrage in the Constitution. And to be fair, he, he says he wants to do this because he doesn't want to jeopardize the state constitution being ratified. He thinks that it's still, you know, franchising on is still too new of an idea. It could be, it could be dangerous to this, this process of statehood. And, and, you know, of course the Utah territory had applied for statehood seven times. Mm-hmm. So they really were counting on this as kind of being their chance. And so he, he um, argued for separate submissions. So submit a constitution that does not enfranchise women and then go back later on and um, pass additional legislation. And what did Susan B. Anthony say about this? Beware, beware. (laughs) Um, She says, if that word man is included in your constitution, it will take 100 years to get it out. And I think I'm actually conflating a two couple statements there, but she sends a telegram specifically. I think, yes. And, and yes, I'm, I'm conflating a couple statements there by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, but she sends a telegram to Emmeline and to the women of Utah specifically. And she says, beware, if if you don't have it in your constitution initially, it will never get in. You will never, you will never be, be rid of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they they do, they, they fight, but they didn't ha- expect to have to fight during the constitutional convention, but the women organize and they do fight. And um, they a petition. So as I said earlier, the petition was really the, the only political tool available to women at that time. And so the two different sides start collecting signatures all throughout the territory. And, um, you know, I have to say, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, a trained historian, Brad, and I've just worked with fantastic historians and learned from them. But I have to say, I had my proud, my proudest <laughs> moment as a historian <laughs> when I was researching the Constitutional Convention because I was actually going through and reading the minutes from that convention. Um, it's all right there on the Utah State Legislature's website, and you can read pretty much every statement from, you know, the 60-plus day convention. And I was reading and reading, and I thought, and it's, it's very dry, you know, it was just done in shorthand. It says, so, you know, delegate so-and-so says this, delegate so-and-so says that. And I came across this scene where B.H. Roberts tries to pull one over on the convention and submit falsified petitions. And I read it like 10 times. I was like, how have I never heard this? Is this real? And it's right there in the minutes that he is challenged by another delegate uh, who says, I've asked my constituents about this, this petition, and they didn't know what they were signing, first of all. And secondly, some of these signatures are children and the room goes wild. Mm. And it's, it was so fun to read it right there in the minutes. Um, and to and see, it's not been, you know, I don't remember reading about this before, Island. This. I know, I know. So it, it was kind of just this wonderful, mm. wonderful moment of discovery where, you know, on so much of this work, I've been relying on the work of other wonderful historians and, you know, very, you know, well-known primary source or easily accessible primary source documents, such as newspaper articles or people's PhD theses. And mm-hmm. I felt that that was maybe my, my, my 
my moment of discovery. So, um, yeah, he, he creates quite a scene. And then, of course, his story isn't over. Um, if you read the book, you, you read what happens to him when he actually uh, runs for Congress. So um, I don't know if we should go into all of that. But you know, I, think but I, I was shocked at the scope of, of the scandal around him. And, and, and I think in some respects, it's not the popular story of B.H. Roberts, but it shows this complex, uh, greater historical context going on in Utah. Um, yep. Eventually, it all uh, it comes at least for white women in 1920 with the, uh, the amendment passing. But the story yep. of getting there, those 50, 60 years of Utah history, well, more like 75 years of Utah history is wonderfully put together in this book. The book title again is pioneering the vote, the untold story of suffragists in Utah and the West written by Nyland McBain, our guest today. Nyland, thank you so much for being here and being a part of speak your peace. Oh, thank you for having me. Speak Your Peace is a podcast recorded and engineered in studio underground here in Salt Lake city and I thank my sound engineer and post-production editor, Connor Sorensen from Studio Underground. I also thank Spencer Stokes of Stokes Strategies, who owns Studio Underground. And we thank him for allowing us to, to come uh, just about every week and do a, a, a session of Speaker Peace. Thank you, Nylan McBain, for speaking to us. The past is never truly in the past. It's all around us. It informs us. It speaks to our shared and to our separate identities. Speak Your Peace is a podcast where writers, historians, curators, anyone who can contribute to Utah's history in a meaningful, substantial way, we want them to be here to tell their stories and their discoveries. We hope that there's one place when you get your history fix, this is the place. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hope you'll listen again to Speak Your Peace. Speak Your Peace.